Mark chapter 8. We started this passage last Sunday. I have a sneaking suspicion that we won't finish it today. Mark chapter 8. Jesus is, has been speaking to his disciples up in the region of Caesarea Philippi, which is far to the north. We uh, studied uh, verses 31 through 33 last Sunday. So let me read that just to put our present passage in its context. Uh, so let me begin in verse 31, and I'll read through chapter 9, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let's, uh, let's pause before we uh, begin today and ask the Lord for his help in this um, challenging passage today. We do, Father, read these words and uh, it takes our breath away. And so we come and we pray for grace to hear what your word says. May your spirit move among us, Lord, to open our eyes and ears to the truth of your word. Uh, your very words, Jesus, spoken to this crowd. Uh, strengthen us, Lord, to, to be changed by it. Transform us. Father, strengthen me to proclaim it clearly and truly as it is. And Jesus, please uh, come and be with us now, we ask in your precious name. Amen. Well, some years ago, Dr. John MacArthur uh, wrote in one of his books, people have been trying to domesticate Jesus' message for many years. And by that, he meant that people have been trying to take the sting out of Jesus' message to remove any obstacle that would prevent someone from trusting in Christ as their Savior. The effect of this sanitizing uh, the message of Christ led uh, to uh, uh, an unfortunate development, and that was the words repent and repentance were omitted from gospel presentations. The idea of turning away from sin and surrendering to Jesus' lordship was, was completely left out. I mean, after all, 
uh, surrendering to Jesus' lordship implied obedience. And this demand for obedience was viewed by many as adding works to the gospel. So the argument went from them. So the idea of submitting to Christ as Lord was systematically deleted from most gospel presentations. And along with this, sanctification or growing in personal holiness, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, became completely optional. A new category of Christian was created, referred to as the carnal Christian, or the fleshly Christian, or the worldly Christian. And MacArthur explains that this new category was invented to explain how someone could be converted to Christ and given eternal life, but left totally unchanged in heart and lifestyle by such a transaction. This was the brand of Christianity that I grew up in. There were many so-called Christians in uh, this era, including several of my friends who who lacked any evidence of, of genuine conversion or fruit, spiritual fruit. Uh, all they managed to generate was occasional attendance at church or, or youth group. And the explanation for those who claimed to be believers was that they were carnal Christians who had not surrendered themselves to Jesus as their Lord and given him control of their lives. Uh, that would come at a later stage. There were two stages to this brand of Christianity. And so the gospel message proclaimed in this environment boiled down to this, that Jesus was a kind Savior, that's true, who patiently waited for sinners to accept him or invite him into their hearts. And for those who had made a decision to accept Christ, the free gift of eternal life was given with no strings attached. I wonder if you grew up in a version like that. I know I did, and I know at least one other person in the room did, and maybe more of you. So in 1988, John MacArthur came out with a book to answer this um, brand of Christianity in his book called The Gospel According to Jesus. And in this book, he states, Jesus proclaimed no such message as the one I just read you before. The faith he called sinners to was a repentant, submissive surrender to the truth, including the truth of his lordship. And John MacArthur's not alone in this view. There are a host of Christian teachers who we would respect, who hold this same position as, as MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, John Piper, Steve Lawson, Sinclair Ferguson, and Derek Thomas, to name a handful, they are among those who teach that surrender to Jesus' lordship was part of the gospel message. And MacArthur and these other men that hold this view, it's called lordship salvation because of passages like the one we're studying this morning. It was a significant division when I was in Dallas Seminary. Um, he, this book came out the year before I graduated and essentially divided uh, these two camps. The Lordship Salvation Camp and the Non-Lordship Salvation Camp. 
I was in the non-lordship salvation camp. I thought John MacArthur was dead wrong. I thought it was adding works to the gospel. Uh, some Dallas Seminary professors came out in print uh, against this idea that John MacArthur was uh, promoting, among whom was Dr. Charles Ryrie. So the ripples were felt broadly in Christendom in that time and still are felt today and perhaps have even affected you. And one, the church that you grow up in, if you grew up in a church, held to one of these or the other. So this morning we want to ask, what is the true nature of discipleship? Or to use MacArthur's words, what is the gospel according to Jesus? Was the gospel that Jesus proclaimed the offer of salvation and forgiveness with, with no strings attached? Or did, or did the call of Jesus include a call to surrender to his lordship? Well, we look at this passage this morning, and I think as we work our way through it, we will find out. And I pray that you have an open heart, an open mind to this. Um, and that if you're not of this view that you, uh, perhaps like I did, will come around. This is important for you to know because um, your eternity depends on it. And the eternity, eternal destiny of your friends depends on it. Uh, what does Jesus call us to? when he calls us to become his followers. Well, I've broken our passage into three headings. Uh, you'll see those on the back of this morning's bulletin. I'm confident we'll get through two, and we'll save the third heading for next Lord's Day. I do encourage you to come back. It's a very important part of this um, passage. Uh, so let's dive into these first two headings. The first he heading uh, we encounter is the ranks of discipleship. And by that I mean, to whom does Jesus extend this call? Who does Jesus call to discipleship? And we notice this in verse 34, if you look there again, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples. Uh, as far as we know, Jesus and the twelve are still in the area of Caesarea Philippi, which is far up here to the north. Here's the Sea of Galilee down here. He's been in uh, Galilee for um, most of the gospel of Mark so far, but now he's begun to spread out a little bit and go to regions outside and uh, probably still in or around the region of Caesarea Philippi. This is where Peter made his great uh, confession of Christ as the Messiah uh, in verse 29. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're God's anointed king. But then in his very next breath, after hearing Jesus announce that he would suffer and die, Peter rebukes him, telling him, by no means, Lord, that will not happen to you. To which Jesus made his famous reply in verse 33, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
while they understood that Jesus was God's anointed king, the Messiah, they did not understand his mission. They thought he came to conquer, not suffer and die. That's where the action of verse 34 picks up, to further clarify what his mission is and to describe what it will cost those who follow him. Jesus summons those who were nearby together with the twelve. Uh, in verse 34. Uh, and this word here, and calling the crowd, call can refer to a simple invitation to invite someone to come near, a, a friendly sort of thing. But call can also have a ring of authority attached to it. It's used uh, in the court system of that day to describe a legal summons to court. And although this is not a legal setting, it seems to have that sense of authority attached to it. Christ summons those who are nearby. He's, he's about to make a major announcement, and he wants all those within earshot to hear this authoritative message. Here's the thing I want you to note, is that Jesus includes the crowd around him in this call. He's been with his disciples alone, but apparently there's some, uh, uh, some people within earshot, and he gathers them to, to himself as well. What this shows us is what he's about to say isn't just for those already committed to him. It's for anyone who, who desires to be his follower. In other words, Jesus' call to discipleship isn't just for the spiritually elite. It's not those who are advanced and who want to go to another level. Uh, as I was taught growing up, you become a Christian. Sometime later, you have this uh, experience where you dedicate your life to Christ. Have, have you ever heard that? Dedicate your life to Christ. And then that's kind of when you become his disciple and you go on to bigger and better things. Um, that's not the case here. It's, this call is given to the rank and file, the general population. The ranks of discipleship, the, the people to whom Jesus makes this call, along with its, requires, its requirements, it's, it's very important because there are those who, who have said, as I mentioned earlier, that surrendering to his lordship was not part of becoming a Christian. You do that sometimes, sometime later. Um, it's not part of the average Christian experience. Becoming a Christian, th this group says, it was merely a matter of trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. It did not require you to lay down your life and surrender to him. You could be forgiven. You could be a Christian. You could be assured of eternal life in heaven without surrendering uh, to Jesus as your Lord. I wonder if that's what you were told. As I was. There were two professors at Dallas Seminary very outspoken about this view. One was a prof named Zane Hodges. The other, as I mentioned, was Dr. Charles Ryrie. And friend, this view, this non-lordship view of salvation, I believe is also the predominant view in, 
in many, many, if not most, American churches. And I think this is why the church is in the state it is, it's in today. It's because people believe they're Christians, but in actuality, they've never given their lives to Christ. Now, this view does teach, and clearly, uh, does teach that we need to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. Unfortunately, many times this boils down to simply saying the sinner's prayer. And this view also holds that once you've asked Jesus to forgive your sins, you can be certain of your salvation. And the, the phrase used here is once saved, always saved. Now that's true if the once saved is certain. And this is true regardless of whether a person bears fruit or not. And I sat in, I, I remember sitting in um, a congregation where I heard the pastor preach this very thing. Uh, that even if our lives go off the rails, we don't bear fruit for Christ. Now we stumble, all of us stumble. Let's, let's agree, let's say this is not talking about stumbling in sin, okay? This is, this is about a lifetime of ingrained habit here that you don't turn away from. Practicing sin is the way 1 John puts it. And so then surrendering to Jesus, lordship, surrendering to Christ's lordship was for those who wanted to get serious about God. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that phrase. For those of you who want to get serious of God, about God tonight, I want you to come down here and rededicate your life to Jesus Christ. Or for those ready to do business with God, have you ever heard that one? If you're ready to do business with God tonight, surrendering to his lordship uh, was not part of the gospel presentation. And I want you to see that it's simply not true. It is part of the gospel presentation. Look at Jesus' words here, as we'll see in just a moment. One Christian author described it this way. Well, let me back up and say this. The call along with these requirements, it's not made for those going to a higher level. It's for those at the front door. Uh, the call to be a disciple and surrendering to Jesus was made to the crowd, to anyone who wanted to be a follower. And this call to discipleship, it's not an advanced course. It's not Christianity 404. This is Christianity 101. And so one author described it, the disciple of Jesus is not the deluxe or heavy-duty model of the Christian especially padded, textured, streamlined, and empowered for the fast lane on the straight and narrow way. He stands, the disciple that is, on the pages of the New Testament as the first level of basic transportation in the kingdom of God. It's at the front door, friend. So these are the ranks of discipleship. Important to see that this is not a, a promotion in your faith to a, 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 
a higher level uh, for the heavy-duty Christian who wants to get serious with God. This is at the front door. It's basic. It's for all here that we see. So this brings us to our second heading today. From the ranks of discipleship, Jesus uh, calls anyone, anyone who wants to be my disciple. He moves on to the requirements of discipleship. What he expects of those who follow him. I wonder if that, just saying that, makes you uncomfortable. Does Jesus expect things of those who follow him? Well, let's just look in the Bible and see what it says. Um, he says in verse 34, look at 34 with me again, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone, if anyone would come after me, uh, come after me, or your Bible might say, follow me, means to follow someone as their disciple. Uh, education did not take place in Jesus' day like it takes place now, where they, students would sit in a classroom behind desks and listen to a lecture. I'm not saying lecture never took place, but that's not what we're reading about here. Greek philosophers would teach their students in Jewish rabbis would instruct their pupils uh, by walking around, and, and their disciples would follow behind them, literally walk behind them, and learning as they went. And they would ask questions to their teacher they were following. This is what Jesus did here, and we see him practicing this same teaching method throughout the Gospels. Uh, as, as we've seen in Mark, Jesus was constantly teaching the 12 as they journeyed from place to place, whether they were walking or whether they were in a boat. And for those who wanted to enter this school and follow after him, uh, Jesus goes on to name three requirements. And the first is deny yourself. Uh, and the next phrase in verse 34 says, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Deny, when it's used of an object or a statement, it means to declare that something is untrue, something is false. I deny that allegation we hear on TV. Um, and he means by that, the senator who says that, uh, means it's a false allegation. Um, we can also deny people, uh, and that's to claim that you have no relationship with them, that you don't know them, and this is exactly what Peter did in the courtyard of the high priest. As you recall, he denied Jesus three times uh, before the rooster crowed in the morning, claimed he didn't know him, that he didn't have a relationship with him. That, that's how deny is being used here, but it's not being used for someone else, it's being used for yourself. Uh, it's called reflexive. It means the action of the verb comes back on the subject of the verb. And so disciples are called to deny themselves. Now, take note, they're not called to deny themselves something or renounce something. I'm giving up whatever for a week. I'm fasting from this for a week. It's not talking about denying yourself something. It's talking about denying your very self. And what does that mean? It means to renounce uh, 
to deny and renounce your own personal agenda. Like James and John that we noted last week in chapter 10. Lord, we want to sit at your right hand and left hand when you come in power. Not asking much. This call to deny yourself is to denounce, uh, deny and renounce your own self-interests. It's, it's a, it's, can I say, a clear call. Take note, friend. Please note this. It's a clear call for you and me to surrender our lives to Christ. It's a change in ownership. We don't live to please ourselves. We live to please the one we're following. As, as, we, as, as his followers, we don't go through the day pursuing our own agenda. We go through the day pursuing his agenda. Luke helps us um, by adding, and um, well, they're Jesus' words here, but, but this gives a little fuller um, illustration of what might be involved. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And so the word if you're going to stumble today, you want to stumble over this word right here. Uh, the word hate. I, Pastor Rob, forget it. I can't get past the word hate. So what does that mean? What, what does it mean in, this, in the context of this verse? It means that your love for Christ is so far superior and so great and consuming that your love for your wife and children looks like hate by comparison. Love for Christ, love for wife and children. Is that what he's calling for? Seems like he just said that. Yes. Um, Christ is putting himself in first place. And he's asking us to put him in first place. So if I were, if I were to ask you, if I were to go down the rows and say, hey, by the way, What's the most important thing in your life this morning? No, I got a better idea. We'll just flash it on the screen. How about that? I've got this great device that can read your mind, and we'll just suction cup it to your forehead, and the screen will show us what is the most important thing in your life right this very moment. So would it be Christ? Would it be Christ and his kingdom? And wow, could we, at any point in the day, I mean, you can come back when, when, it, when you're good. I mean, maybe you're a little not awake right now and not doing, you can come back later when, when he is the most important thing in your life and we'll let you slip through. But is there any time in the day where that could be said of you? that your love for him is so far superior, so great and so consuming, that, that your love for your family, by comparison, looks like hate. I just don't think that we've been taught this. And just a few verses later, Jesus says, so therefore, any one of you that does not renounce all that he has 
cannot be my disciple. It doesn't mean that you have to get rid of it at all. Uh, to one rich young man, that's what he called him to do. Jesus called him to do. But renounce, turn your back on, deny. You might have a nice car, but, but that's not the most important thing in your life. This self-denial is what Paul said Timothy was so good at. In the book of Philippians, listen to what Paul says. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Can, we, can it be said that we're interested in what interests Christ? What would that be? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. We're called to put this agenda in our day planner. Does anybody use a day planner? Uh, in your iPhone. Uh, put it in your memos. Put it in your task list. Seek the kingdom of God. Seek to see it expand. Uh, that other people would come to, into his kingdom, come to know Christ as their Savior and Lord, and, and in so doing, become part of his kingdom. Uh, and your other task, according to this verse, um, seek his righteousness, meaning his righteousness in our own lives, uh, the process of growing in holiness and growing in grace and becoming more like Jesus. Sanctification is what we're talking about, seeking his righteousness to be seen in us. So this first requirement that he makes of, of, the, of the hoi polloi, of those just standing there, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself. And so I see that objection out there. You know, Pastor Rob, there's nobody, nobody can pull this off. And you're right, of course. Unless the Spirit of God is operating in that person to give him a heart that will renounce uh, what he has and to make Christ uh, his priority. It's entirely dependent on the movement of the Holy Spirit. Please note what it says. If anyone would come after me, or if anyone wishes to come after me, or if anyone has a will to come after me, uh, that's, that's an indication of the Spirit of God operating uh, to bring that person to saving faith. And here is what the Spirit will do. He will, he will enable that person to surrender his life to the Lord Jesus. Well, there's a second requirement. The very next phrase, uh, it says, take up your cross. Please look at this. I didn't write it. I'm just the messenger if you want to become a follower of Jesus, you must be willing to follow him to the point of death. 
Look at what Jesus says. Uh, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And this word cross, it's probably a reference to the horizontal beam of a cross, sometimes called the transverse beam. It's uh, called the patibulum in Latin, if that's correct. And the New Bible Dictionary explains that when a criminal was condemned to death, he was required to carry these, this horizontal piece. I have in, in my mind something along the size of a railroad tie. Uh, he was called, forced to carry this beam to the place of his execution. And this is the kind of beam that Jesus had to carry and was too weak to carry on his own to his own crucifixion. And so the Romans pressed a bystander named Simon uh, into service to, to carry it for him. A more cruel and humiliating form of execution probably did not exist in the ancient world. It was so gruesome and degrading that ancient historians held back from describing it in detail. They wouldn't write about it. One Roman statesman, Cicero, described crucifixion as a cruel, disgusting penalty, the worst of extreme tortures inflicted on slaves, and something to be dreaded. And so when Jesus says this, they would know immediately what he's talking about because this was a common sight in the ancient world. Uh, that was the most common method of execution for the Romans. And so they would have immediately gotten the point. But even so, it's intended to shock them. And I wonder if it shocks you. This would have brought to their minds the horrifying death march that that criminal was forced to make. It ended with, uh, at the place of execution, with, with the public humiliation of the criminal being tied or nailed to that transverse horizontal beam. And he would be stripped of all his clothing. And then he would be raised on the horizontal beam, no, vertical beam, uh, and while that horizontal beam was attached uh, to that single post, it, it was not very high off the ground as we often see it portrayed. In fact, biblical archaeologists uh, discovered uh, a man who'd been crucified, I believe, in the city of Jerusalem. And based on the way his body was shaped, they believe he was crucified, something like this. But note how close to the ground it is. He's barely two or three feet off the ground. If you can see that from where you're sitting, Jesus wouldn't have towered above the people around him. He would have been right there. So take up your cross was not a call not merely a call to suffer hardship and discomfort for Jesus, but a call to endure humiliation and, if necessary, to be willing to, to pay the ultimate price for Christ. Whew.
It's heavy stuff. I didn't write it. I didn't write it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, was a pastor in Germany during World War II. And uh, many of you know he was eventually executed by the Nazis. He said, the cross is laid on every Christian. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Ooh, Pastor Rob, I wish you wouldn't talk like this in front of my children. Because frankly, they might not want to follow Christ. They might turn away from him when they hear you talk like this. And this is that what we've been doing for the last, I don't know how many decades, that very thing. Let's take out the bad stuff so that nobody will will come to Christ, or will be kept from Christ, rather. But this is what Christ says to those around him, to what Bonhoeffer says, the, Christ is, the cross is laid on every Christian. And this is what it means to follow Jesus. Thankfully, most of us in America have never been called to pay the ultimate price for Christ. But many of our brothers and sisters across the world have. If anyone would come after me, was, was, was this, did anybody mention this to you when you came to Christ? Look, you can, you can take this home and read it yourself. You can dice it, dice it up as much as you want. It'll still say the same thing at home as it will here. This is what Jesus said was required for those who would follow but this is not the gospel heard in America these days. If anyone wishes to be my disciple, let him take up his execution stake and follow me. But what we hear is a gospel stripped of its demands, offering forgiveness of sins and eternal security with no demand for surrender to Christ's lordship, with no demand for ongoing obedience in the life of a Christian. But Jesus says, take up your cross and follow. One more requirement, and I think that's about all any of us could stand after this. Follow him. The next phrase, take up your cross and follow me. It might strike you as a bit repetitive. I mean, after all, at the beginning of verse 34, uh, or in the middle, if anyone would come after me, or if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Again, uh, if anyone would come after me, let him come after me. Is that what he's saying? No, the first occurrence if anyone would come after me, follow me. He means follow as my disciple. But this follow me has a little different uh, um, meaning to it. it. It can refer to following someone as, as their disciple. But this word can also have the idea of um, obedience. 
um, when your parents or maybe your teacher, especially your coach, says to you, follow my instructions, what they're really saying is obey my instructions. Obey my instructions. And this is the way Jesus is using the word. By follow me, here he means obey me. One scholar agrees, he says, the imagery means that they must obey his teaching, including what he says about giving their lives. What a novel idea in our culture today, isn't it? That someone who claims to be a Christian actually follows Christ's commands. That someone who claims to follow Jesus actually does what his word tells them to do. I'm being very cynical. This is especially true in the South where so many claim to be believers. And it really is novel down here in this area. Uh, someone actually obeying Christ's commands. A Christ follower obeying Christ's commands. Wow! It's not new to our culture, though. Because uh, listen to what this says uh, in 1 John. And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. It was a problem back then. Apparently there were many that John was writing about here who said, I know him but didn't keep his commandments. We could add to our, our acquaintances people of like that. And then John, ha, ha, he said it again in the next chapter. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practice, practices righteousness is righteous. <laughs> what an idea. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. As he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Please note the term there. Makes a practice. We're talking about uh, a, a, a pattern. Uh, we're not talking about stumbling in sin here. We all stumble in sin, but this talks about a repeated pattern in this person's life. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, his life could be characterized by that, is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed... His word abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. Mm, mm, mm. Years ago I had the opportunity to um, meet with a, um, a gentleman who was a little bit older than I. And um, we will, I, I was able to share the gospel with him. And I, I, 
I told him what Christ required. I said, you've got to turn your back on, the, on sin that you know about in your life. Jesus wants you to turn and follow him. And he said, does that include my girlfriend? The girlfriend he, he, uh, he was sleeping with? I said, yes, yes, I'm afraid so. And so he said, well, I'll, I'll think about it. And he died sometime later, and as far as I know, never trusted Christ. Jesus says, follow, obey my commandments. If he wished to become his disciple, that's part of it. So what is the true nature of discipleship then? Or in MacArthur's words, what is the gospel according to Jesus? Was it an offer of salvation and forgiveness without strings attached? Or did the call of Jesus inc include a call to surrender to his lordship? I, I believe Christ gives us the true nature. Uh, we've looked at two headings today. Uh, the first being the ranks of discipleship. To whom is this call addressed? And the answer is anyone who wants to follow Jesus. Anyone who would be a Christian. It's not a call to become a heavy-duty Christian. It's, this is what's required to come in the front door. Then he goes on to give the requirements that are still up on the board. Deny yourself. Surrender yourself to me. My agenda. Tape up your cross. Be willing to suffer humiliation, even death, for my name. And lastly, follow him. Follow me in obedience. I want you to actually obey my word. Well, I can think of all kinds of ways you could be offended by this. So let me just offer a few things as we conclude. God's grace has to be the driving factor in all of this. You cannot do it in your own human strength. The Spirit of God has got to be operating in you. And we see a hint of that in Jesus' phrase, if anyone would come after me, if anyone has a will to come after me, um, the Spirit of God has to be moving for you to be able to deny yourself, uh, take up your cross and follow. So it is not apart from grace. It is not a work the Spirit of Christ is the one who produces these things in us. Secondly, let me, let me ask, is this what you've done? Is this what you've done? When, when you became a Christian, whenever you think that was or believe that was, did you say, Christ Jesus, I'm a sinner, and I want you to have everything? Now, frankly, every day I think of something, I, I, I'm shown something else he wants, okay? <laughs> oh, you, my job too, okay. My, my relationship with my children, that too, okay, all right. And it just goes on. 
We'll never know everything when we come to know Christ, but it's a willingness to say, Jesus, you take the wheel. I don't want you to be my co-pilot. You fly the plane. Tell me where to go. Show me what to do in your word. Is that how you came to Christ? That kind of experience, something along those lines where it was, it was not, you know, hit or miss. It was fish or cut bait. Well, and third, you know, there's so many people in this culture, and specifically, I'm, even Canton, Georgia, that uh, grew up under the kind of gospel I grew up under. And, you know, your friends, uh, and as you observe them, whether there is, you know, as John said, the one who practices righteousness is righteous. And there are friends you observe who name the name of Christ, but who do not live righteous lives. And, and friend, they need to hear the gospel according to Jesus. And that if they believe they're safe and secure and bound for eternity, but have a life that uh, defames the name of Christ, something's not right. And they need to hear from you, brother. You can just steal John the Baptist words here. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Man, something's got to change, bro. Well, thank you for your patience. Let me close this in prayer. We need immense grace, Lord, to absorb this. This is a tall drink of water. Um, please give us your grace. Enable us by your spirit, Lord. If anyone here has never surrendered to you in repentance and faith, uh, by turning from their sin and turning to your payment for sin on the cross, Lord, I pray that they would uh, trust in your atoning death this very morning. And that most of all, they would understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And Father, for those of us who are followers of you, help us to proclaim your gospel and not this world's gospel. You make no apologies here. Boy, it's tough to hear, but that's what it is. We need grace to absorb this and grace to share it with those in our world. And Jesus, do this in us by your good spirit, we pray. Amen.